I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Get Out, the 2017 film written and directed by Jordan Peele. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayetos. Hi. Okay, so before we jump into Get Out, I want to announce that the next episode of Beyond the Screenplay will be on the 1991 film Thelma and Louise, which yeah. I have never seen start to finish. Wow. So this is going to be... Huzzah! Yeah, it'll be good. It's like referenced in every single like screenwriting book ever. Mm. And I'm, yeah. I've seen parts of it many times, um, but I've never seen it start to finish. So I'm excited about that. Uh, I'm so patrons, for you guys. Yeah, no, it'll be good. It'll be good learning experience. And so patrons, if you uh, want to suggest topics or things we should pay attention to when we are watching and discussing Thelma and Louise, head over to the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon. There's a post waiting for you uh, to share your thoughts and suggestions. And speaking of thoughts and suggestions, we got some really good ones over on Patreon for Get Out uh, that outlines some of the many things that I am excited to talk about with Get Out. So uh, patron Evan Westman suggested that we talk about the alternate ending and whether or not they should have released that one. I think that's an interesting conversation. So I want to make sure we talk about that. Uh, patron Ian suggests talking about Alison Williams' excellent performance and Oh, We Shall, as well as the many excellent oh. performances mm -hmm. in this movie. Uh, Kyle Marquis suggests that we talk about how to use genre films to talk about real-world issues. And patron Megan Chang wants to hear about our experiences watching this movie in a theater, which we can absolutely start doing right now. So, Get Out. So, when I saw Get Out, it was shortly after... It had been released and there was a ton of like hype. I remember hearing about Jordan Peele made a horror film and I was like, say that again. Like what? Mm -hmm. Jordan Peele made a horror? Like what? Um, and then just hearing all the hype around it. And I was like, OK, but it can't be that good. Like what is going on? And in the middle of a day where I think I was apartment hunting, uh, there was a block of time between two appointments that I had. And I was like, let's, let's go see a movie. Let's go see Get Out. Everyone's obsessed with it. And it was like a, so it was like a Sunday afternoon. The theater was like pretty empty. Um, and just, the movie started and it was just so good. And I remember just like laughing in joy, even in like the scary moments, just like were hilarious because of what the context was, like what this scenario of this movie was. Uh, I just couldn't believe it. I, I've talked before about, you know, and when, when I saw Black Panther, I was having this moment of like looking around at the audience of like, does everyone is everyone else seeing like there's only black people on screen right now? Like, do they does Marvel know what they do? Like, are you allowed to do this? Uh, and I was very much having that experience with Get Out also of like, are you allowed to make this movie, Jordan Peele? Like, surely not all the white people are going to be. All the white people in this movie are evil. Like, you were not allowed to do this, Jordan Peele. How did you do this? Oh, my God. And so it was this, like, very specific experience of being delighted by the hilarity of uh, the cleverness of the design of this movie and all the levels it was working on and the stress of, like, wait, like, are you allowed to do this? And I'm kind of happy that I saw it after there was like all this universal praise and hype 
around it because I think that calmed that part of me of like, oh my God, like people are going to like riot after they see this movie. Knowing that everyone loved this movie, I think helped me uh, enjoy it that much more. So I was just struck by the subject matter, how it was executed, the really smart, clever screenwriting where it's doing all these different layers of things. It's playing with genre and expectations. It's it's just so good. One of my favorite things is just the design of the protagonist. Also, I oh, want to wow. talk about mm. that and just the way this film puts you into alignment with the protagonist, which is often a problem I have with horror films of, you know, when you're thinking the protagonist needs to get out and they're not, it's very frustrating. But every time I was having thoughts of, this is a bad idea, Chris, you need to be second guessing things. Chris was second guessing things. So, so many things to talk about. Um, and I'm excited to dive in, but I just, I left the theater like, wow, that was so much fun. And then I watched it again and I was like, it's still really fun. And I still <laughs> love watching it. And it's, it's just so good. Um, anyway, so that was my theater experience. Alex, what about you? Yeah, man. It, I also loved it on the first viewing. Uh, I remember seeing the trailer and, and being excited by the trailer because it just looked fun and subversive with a great cast. And uh, I was just really interested to see what the minds of, you know, like Key and Peele. Like, I, I do appreciate, you know, the Jordan Peele, uh, Keegan-Michael Key sense of humor. And so seeing that in kind of a subversive horror film was an exciting prospect. And it's just one of those movies that I just love when a film is eminently rewatchable. And part of what makes this movie so rewatchable is that it works on so many levels all at once, all the time. So it's, it's got this literal story that is a really wacky, like horror concept. It's like a super wacky Stepford wives, like fun, goofy horror concept, but it's, it's like perfectly designed so that until you know, every twist and turn and reveal of the plot, everything that's happening and the way people are talking and, and the actions they're taking can be read like five different ways that all feel valid. And then upon a repeat viewing can be read different ways. And I think it's just the most brilliant type of screenwriting when you can have an audience experience an entire movie uh, and, and it, for it to feel right and for it to make sense through one specific lens and then watch it again through a different lens. And it also all adds up. And I think it's just such a brilliant masterstroke because it means that this movie, you, I think when, when you talk, Michael, about, oh, God, like, is this OK? Are people going to accept this movie? I think I'd be more worried about that with a movie that was maybe more one dimensional or was just literally mm -hmm. about like a simplistic idea of racism or a simplistic one note kind of you know, bad racists do bad things, but this movie is so much more complex than that. And it's about so many levels of like social horror. I mean, I think that's what uh, Jordan Peele calls this movie. It's like a social thriller, social mm -hmm. horror movie. And there's so many layers to that. And it's just, yeah, it's just, it's hard to talk about because uh, I think just think it's absolutely brilliant. And it was my pick for best picture of 2017 I think it should have won because we're still talking about it. And I don't know, are we talking about Shape of Water? I don't know. Um, so I, I just, I, I, I was in my top 10 of the decade. I love this movie. I always love rewatching it because of its total rewatchability. Um, and I think it just, it just shows that he, you know, Jordan Peele took enough time with this concept and with this screenplay to just 
make every moment count and and every moment work on more than one level and that is just my favorite kind of movie so yeah thumbs up (laughs) yeah yes no I, I remember you and I were going to go to like a, a screening and we drove all the way out to we did. Like it was like an Academy West Hollywood. It was like an yeah. Oscar season screening and it was like sold out. And then it was there. sold out and we couldn't get yeah. in. It was late and it was like, well, we should probably just go home or we could just go watch Get Out by ourselves. Right. And then we did it and it was like, God, this movie is still so good. Yes, um, that, was, yeah. that was a fun night. Yeah. Aww. Awesome. Uh, all right, Brian, what about you? Uh, yeah, I love this movie. Um, it was definitely a contender for my top 10 of the 2010s. And if, if I redid my list today, it would, you know, might, might get on there. Um, unfortunately, my initial, I was very much looking forward to it when it was coming out. I was a big fan of Key and Peele and just like how, you know, the, the early seasons of Key and Peele, they would just come out and talk to the audience and like really kind of got to know them. It was like, these guys are really smart and we have a lot of shared kind of pop culture references and that kind of thing, you know? So I was like, yes, whatever he's going to do is, is going to be great. Um, and, you know, this movie is a really cool culmination of one, something that's been happening, unfortunately, more and more in the past decade is just, you know, new perspectives from filmmakers who aren't white males and getting to, you know, see what their experience is through, through a film. Um, but then also this new wave of horror, which I'm happy about, which is like, kind of prestige, you know, elevated horror as they call it, but where it's like, you know, I've, I've often said like, I love horror as a genre to really take a theme and just explore it, you know? And, um, and the modern horror movies, most of them have really been doing that and get out is like probably the best example of, of a movie that's doing that. So it's like, Oh yeah, it's a horror movie and it's about something (laughs) like it doesn't have to be one or the other guys. Um, and uh, the only negative for me the first time watching this movie was I felt sort of not excited by a lot of by, by the sort of twists and everything. I kind of just called it all um, in, in a weird way where I was like, what the movie is, I love like just sort of what the premise is and all that kind of stuff and what it's talking about. But I remember watching the trailer and just kind of going, oh, it seems like the whole town is in on it. Like that just see or the whole neighborhood or whatever. Like that just kind of seems to be the vibe I'm getting. And the movie doesn't really like try to make you not think that's the case. Like it, the, pretty early on, the movie's like something's going on here, you know. Um, so then I remember starting to watch the movie and just thinking, well, if the whole town is in on it, that because I'd seen like hot fuzz or you know like things where it's like that's kind of the thing. It's like it's like oh, this is all kind of a conspiracy and whatever. Um, then I guess the only twist that's left is that Rose is also in on it. So mm-hmm. then when that happened, I was like, okay, you know, and, and again, not like I called it, that was, you know, derivative or whatever. It was just, <laughs> I happened to personally have the experience where, where my brain was just, you know, maybe because wow, Jordan Peele and I have similar, you know, steps po- ahead, <laughs> unable to enjoy things. He's just too smart. Yeah, too <laughs> smart for these movies. Definitely not unable to enjoy it. I'm bad at calling uh, twists and stuff. But then finally, when they reveal what the whole plot is, then I was like, oh, well, this is just Stepford Wives. So it was a little bit of like every time the movie was trying to do a big look at this thing, I was like, well, yeah, you know, like that was my only problem the first time watching it. Fortunately, this is a good movie, which means it doesn't rely on the twists and turns. Um, and so it's like that was only a slight negative for me the first time I watched. It. I still like the movie a lot, but it was kind of it didn't like do all the things that I think it was hoping that it that it could. Um, but then when I watch the movie again, that doesn't matter. And I get to just really enjoy 
the great filmmaking, the great performances, the great ideas, the little foreshadowing things that you don't notice the first time around. You know, my mother loved her kitchen, so we keep a piece of her in here, right? Like <laughs> things right like that. Reveal but, the uh, maid, Georgina, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so good. So yeah, basically nothing negative to say about this movie other than unfortunately my strange brain just kind of called all that stuff the first time through. So I didn't get quite the the holy crap kind of experience the first time around. My dumb brain didn't call anything. So <laughs> I had the I had the right experience. I think I remember going and then watching the trailer afterward and being, oh God, I'm so glad I didn't watch this trailer. Cause right. I think it, it probably would have given because I went in totally cold, not knowing yeah. anything about mm. it. And the reveals did really work for me. And like the stepping up of like, something's weird, but like, it can't possibly be what I think it is. And then it's like, no, <laughs> yes, it is. And then it's like, well, then is Rose in on it? Like, she can't possibly be in on it for like mm-hmm. story reasons and meta reasons. And I just want this to, oh God, she's in on it. So like all of those reveals worked for me. There are a couple moments at the end that I want to get to that that didn't work for me and that did actually like throw me at, throw me out of the experience a little bit. Um, so yeah, so I, I feel like it's not a a, a perfect movie, uh, but it's it's like a perfect movie too. It's really good. Uh, it kind of is. Yeah, yeah. But I know what you mean. Yeah. Cool, Trisha. What about you? So I didn't see this movie in a theater uh, because uh-huh. I was too scared and. <laughs> I'd heard nothing but good things. I was really excited. I wanted to watch it, but I was like, what happens if I get to the movie theater and then I have to leave because I'm too scared? So I, but um, as some might know, I do an Oscar movie screening series. And so all movies that are nominated for Best Picture, I put myself through the experience of watching them. I've done that for like well over a decade now. Um, And I just... I do whatever it takes to sit down and put myself through all of the best picture nominees. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not always pleasant, but uh, one of the things that we do is um, for many years, my friend Misty and I would co-host like screenings with our friend groups and we would do curated meals. Like we would do like themed meals for the movie and then we would like show the movie and everything and showing it at a big group of people when you've had like a meal that's kind of related to the movie. It's just fun. Um, so with this one, I hadn't seen it, uh, but, uh, my friend Misty, who was co-hosting with me had, and I was like, what do we need to serve for this? And she's like, we need to serve the whitest food imaginable. (laughs) We need to serve like a charcuterie board and some iced tea and like all of these hors d'oeuvres and little things like this. We also are going to need milk and fruit loops, but we can't serve them together. (laughs) And I was like, what are we doing? What is this? Um, and she was like, trust me, trust me. It's going to be great. So we had like a bizarre, very white meal. Um, <laughs> it was awesome. And then we watched the movie and, and uh, you know, it's, I, I just, I was swept away by how much fun this movie is. And I was nervous at times, you know, I'm such a wimp about horror, um, but I really loved it. And there are a couple of like jump scares that I think are kind of cheap. Um, and, but that's okay. Like you kind of want, you know, if you pay your money for a horror movie, you kind of want to jump a couple times, I guess people who enjoy that. Um, but, (laughs) but the rest of it is like, it's just so fascinating and it's just so fun. Um, and, and there is this, and I want to get to this because we had a patron that asked about it, but there's this creeping unease, like it is horror, but it's more anxiety than fear. Where, like, in every scene, I'm not worried someone's going to, like, leap across a table and stab somebody in the neck. Like, that's, I don't think that's going to happen. 
Um, it's not going to be an explosion of violence, but something very wrong is happening very slowly. And the tension of every scene is ramping up and ramping up and ramping up. And so the situation you understand is unsustainable. And you know where it's going is very bad, even if you know it's not going to go bad in the next five minutes. But what's happening in the next five minutes is going to be bad in the scheme of things. And so I think that in itself is really fascinating um, as a an approach to constructing a horror movie. Um, when we talk about thrillers, which I think social thriller is like a pretty decent description of what this genre is. And I do want to talk about genre more, but we usually are talking about like movies with sequences where there's like sort of set pieces and sequences. And there are a couple here, but not even really that. Like, it's not like they go to a new location and then there's a foot chase on a, the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> they're not gonna, They're not doing any of that traditional thriller thing. Um, they're just, it's just this like Hitchcockian, really contained psychological um, unease, social unease. And I, it's such a, a timely, like, very, very like razor sharp, so sharply observed, like sort of satirical thriller that I, I don't know. Like the minute you watch it, you just feel like you're in the hands of a master filmmaker. You yeah. know that, you know that what's happening is minutely constructed and you know that the ride you're on is going to take you to a place that will like make you laugh and also make you scream. And it's so rare. I don't know. It's such a rare thing. I, I'm desperate to watch Nope. And I'm terrified to watch Nope. <laughs> and I just like, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Someone nominated for an Oscar. To make me to do it. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can't wait. Let's get into it. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere. And this summer, Mubi's acclaimed audio documentary series, Mubi Podcast, returns for its second season. This time, the focus is on movie theaters, because, as they say, in a time when too many cinemas are shutting down, we think it's time to lift them up. Titled Only in Theaters, the new season will tell surprising stories of individual movie theaters that had a huge impact on film history, and in some cases, history in general. Last year's season one of the show was named Best Arts or Entertainment Podcast in the LA Press Club's National Arts and Entertainment Journalism Awards. It was also nominated for a Webby Award for Best Individual Episode TV or Film. Some episodes from this season include The Rise and Fall of London's infamous Scala Cinema Club, where punk and cinema collided in the shadow of conservative Thatcher-era Britain and fomented filmers like Mary Heron to Steve McQueen. Or the George Eastman Museum's Dryden Theatre, home of the unique Nitrate Picture Show, which spotlights the irreplaceable experience of seeing nitrate prints projected. You can listen to the latest season of the Movie Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And you can try Movie for free for 30 days at movie.com slash beyond the screenplay. 
That's M-U-B-I dot com slash beyond the screenplay for a whole month of great cinema for free. Thanks to Mubi for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. So, yeah, so we've named many things that we need to talk about. Um, starting just I'm just going to start from the beginning. Um so it does that horror movie thing where it starts with that that long take shot, right, of uh, Logan Andre, right, um, yep. getting, you know, kidnapped. And it, so that sets the tone and tells you, like, you're in a horror movie. But then it doesn't do horror movie stuff for a pretty long time. And it does a lot of exposition about Chris and Chris and Rose's relationship and the situation and the guess who's coming to dinnerness of it all. Uh, and, yeah, the, like... The, the sharply observed, like you're saying, Trisha, was something that was jumping out to me immediately. And that's one of the many things that I like about the protagonist. I've you know, I sort of talked about already how he is a, a smart horror movie protagonist who isn't going to, you know, if there's a scream and sounds like someone is dying on the other side of the door, they're not going to go and open the door and be like, what's this thing? Like, I should go toward the danger, right? They're smart about things. But I feel like he he's also the characterization done to make him like an empathetic protagonist is also this very sharply observed behavior that I have certainly experienced where it's like when when being around people that are well-meaning, but to borrow Jordan Peele's term, uh, being racially clumsy, uh, how do you behave and how do you react to that? And I really like that Chris goes out of his way to to defuse situations and make things uh, as comfortable for people as possible, because I think that's an empathetic thing that makes us lean into the protagonist. Um, and it is also just underscoring where the tension is. Like, so it's, it's kind of doing these two things at once where like you see, you know what he's concerned about, both because it's kind of said early on and the movie does a good job of showing you these awkward moments like with the parents or with the brother that'll they'll say a thing and it's like a little awkward but like chris will diffuse it and so the tension just comes in as we're saying this like social dynamic back and forth that is at once universal and hyper specific and that's part of this like doing multiple things at once uh that i just love about that especially that that first act the first kind of 30 40 minutes of this movie where it's just setting up the world and the protagonist and these characters yeah it's such an interesting complex kind of thing that that it's playing with which is like you could the easy version right is like they've never met a black person before or like they're you know there are they are just like racist people but they're like getting to like getting to, learning to like chris they're learning their lesson right but instead it's like you said that the, the clumsiness of the like i would have voted for obama's like oh you're gonna love this let me show you this jesse oh is that whatever like um and, and it's that sort of that sort of thing that's like it's so specific and it's also a really fun it's a really fun thing to do in you know if whether you're an actor or a writer or a director like the things that mean one thing to the people in the room, but a different thing to the audience. Right. So it's like, it's like the character, you know, Bradley Whitford is showing Chris how tolerant he is, but he's showing us how sort of clumsy he is. Chris is showing Bradley Whitford like, cool, that's great. But he's showing us like, all right, I'm, I'm tolerating this, but like, this is, you know, and that's, that's really hard to do. And that's kind of where the sort of satire of it all really 
really glows, right, is is in that way where it can talk, it can do two things at once at all times, and we know exactly what it's doing. I think it's a really fascinating construction of the protagonist, too, because he's kind of an everyman in the sense that he isn't like a bigger personality, right? Like a lot of other people in the scenes are bigger personalities than he mm. is, or they're like taking bigger sw- social swings than he is or whatever. Like, it's not like he goes into the, he's not Rod. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. It's not like he goes into the weekend. Like I'm going to impress the hell out of Rose's parents and like be the most charming boyfriend of all time. He's not trying to like, he doesn't have a big goal. Right. He's not trying to like do a thing on the weekend. Instead, everybody else, the onus of acting like doing actions is placed on everybody else in the scene. And Chris is put in the position of reacting. And as a rule, that is a a difficult protagonist if they're going to have like a really strong arc. But in the case of this movie, as someone who is kind of put into a situation and his arc is, I need to stop being passive and be active, starting him in a more passive defensive place is the wisest thing that you could do. Where you put him back on his heels, he's like, I'm just going to manage this. Like, I'm just going to manage the situation the best I can and with the lightest touch possible. Mm -hmm. Like, as you're pointing out, he's diffusing, but he's not doing more than he needs to do. He's just like, I'm just going to kind of laugh that thing off. I'm just going to kind of like set that thing over there and not even comment on it. Like, or just give a little smile. That's what I do in most situations. Um, That's really likable. It's really understandable. It puts us in the same exact, in his shoes, right? Again, it makes him relatable. Um, And it, it reinforces ultimately what his arc needs to be, which is like he has to stop not stop doing things doing that. and start <laughs> right. doing things. Right. right. Um, so it is just like it, it's such a smart construction for that character. Um, and, and it's done so um, in such a grounded way that we don't even notice that it's happening. Like mm-hmm. it's not like. You, you not like Rose is going like, you need to be more active, Chris. Like, again, <laughs> right. it's it's just we kind of see him constantly. I feel I love Daniel Kaluuya's face where he's like, I'm thinking about saying something. And it's usually like a couple seconds before he says something and you can kind of wait for it. You're like, he's going to he's maybe going to work his way up to saying something finally. Um, again, it's just really well observed and like really well written. Yeah. And like you're saying we all can identify with social situations that we just want to scream and get out of. (laughs) And, and so I think this movie is so brilliant because it it invites everyone in to this very specific type of social situation that a lot of people have not personally experienced, but it dramatizes it in this really funny, you know, defenses go down when you use humor. So hilarious, funny, um, incredibly awkward, like you've been saying, very sharply observed, like everything is pitch perfect. It feels like the yeah. modulation of the satire is like on the edge of a knife and it's always just right. And I think this movie is remarkable because it, it like I said, it invites everyone into this experience and we are with the character. We feel what he feels. We understand why you know, maybe we didn't understand before, like, what do you mean by microaggression? Or like, what is that? Why is that really a problem? 
you like you feel the social yeah. horror of it in this yeah. movie and and i just think just what an amazing thing to accomplish with a work of art to to invite everybody into a perspective that is so relatable and so empathetic and 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 so everybody can then talk about it and now it's now it's speakable and and like universally recognizable by anyone who can empathize with this character um so it's a part of what is just so magic about this movie to me is it just makes it makes all of it frank and visible yeah and it's doing all of that without uh like sacrificing the message either right like it's not right. watering down the point or mm-hmm. like the 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 argument that is being made yeah. it's like somehow doing that very potently right. while right. also no, like inviting the, the movie everybody takes in. no prisoners like like the movie is brutal <laughs> it's great like yeah right. so it's not like it's a, it's a gentle movie it's like everything's fine right. actually like you're all okay um the movie is like a brutal satire and, and yet it manages to like cut through uh, at least for a lot of I me, mean, for most people who love this movie, it cut through any defenses they might have up of like, well, that's not me. I, I, I don't want to think about that. It feels like it, it works this magic where it just cuts through all of that. And no, you are with this character in this experience. And then on top of that, the actual like crazy events of the movie do pay off just like a, like a crazy gonzo horror premise. So it's also like satisfying in other ways besides just the, thematic content you know like there's a another version yeah. of this movie where it's it's just like it is just theme on the nose with nothing else and this movie satisfies on other levels where the twists are fun like being john malkovich insane mind-blowing you know weird uh twists and turns of like what is actually happening and that also cuts through defenses i think so it's just jordan peele just nailed this thing <laughs> yeah speaking of being john malkovich there's so much of that in this movie there's like a small door with something behind yep. it there's Catherine keener there's like the weird orientation video there's the friend who's like predicting the conspiracy but like they actually turn out to be kind of right the sunken place is kind of being john malkovich with a little viewport right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, jordan peele and i just have like the same pop culture references which is unfortunately why i could call all this twist um but uh, the other thing that, that it does, you know, with what you guys were just talking about is, again, it's this is like the anti don't look up in terms of satire, right? Don't look up is right. like, here's a bunch of people who have on one side of a, of a belief system and they're fairly normal. Here are the people on the other side and they're nuts. And like, that's it. There's not a lot of in between. But like what's really cleverly done here, you know, obviously, Michael, in your video, you talked about Rose um kind of like always sticking up and and you know being like well of course she couldn't be in on it because she's like yelling to police officer and she is you know like railing about her parents and i love love his response she's like oh he's my man and he's like uh-huh like, like yep <laughs> welcome to my life um but then even within the family you know it's uh, you know, at one point, uh, Catherine Keener says like, oh, maybe I should should hypnotize you. And, you know, and then Bradley was like, nah, like leave him alone or whatever, you know. And it's like it could have been it would have been so easy for like everyone to be like really pushing for a certain thing, really trying to do this. But like the family just feels so organic, which is doing two things. One, it is, you know, for the audience making it feel like, well, 
clearly not everyone could be in on it because they are disagreeing about what should happen next and like you know all this kind of stuff but two it, when you watch a movie in repeat on repeat viewings you're like oh they're just psychotic like they they could have <laughs> they, they could have grabbed him five minutes after he walked in the door but they're just like playing this like crazy multi-day mind game with them you know and they're so good at it they're so like freakishly good at like just being like, oh, we're just a nice, normal family. We're going to kind of like quibble about things and disagree about things. Meanwhile, we all are very much on the same page about what exactly is going to happen in, you know, two days from now. Well, yeah. And that's what's so like fascinating watching it again. As, it, as you're saying, it really works every time you watch it and you see it with a new context and that it is like this weird game that they're playing and you can feel that different different family members enjoy different parts of the game <laughs> like more than yeah. others and yeah. like the way the brother like just all of that is he's is a little too really, eager she has yeah. to like calm him down yeah <laughs> right and yeah so it is just it's pitch perfect and as as you were saying, Alex, where like the satire is just like on this thin line that just like it it manages to stay there. And to your point, also Brian, Kathleen Keener, her performance is so great as the mom, and that hypnotism scene with her and Daniel Kaluuya is it's just so good. Like both of them, the performances are just like exactly right, where you believe that he'd be willing to sit like just like one more sentence through, and like you could see how that works and she's right on this line for me anyway of like something's creepy and something's up but like nothing overt like nothing to justify me like literally running out of the room right now if i'm trying right. to like impress my my girlfriend's parents kind of thing and i i feel like that that sequence always like strikes me and her performance especially in in those early scenes of like you were somehow clearly evil and bad but also maybe not. And maybe you're just like a kind of a weird bomb in the suburbs kind of right. thing. <laughs> I likes to hypnotize people. It's so funny because I made a note watching it this time of like, even the way Allison Williams like looks at pastries in the first scene, like in like the <laughs> opening credits, I'm like, the movie's telling yeah. me she's, she's psychotic right it's now. Crazy. Like, yeah. but, but like in the first feeling, it's like, oh, it's just like a montage of like, she's like really considering which donut she wants, but mm -hmm. like, she's psychotic. Like that's the same kind of like weirdness that you see when she's eating, you know, fruit loops at the end. And, um, and I just, I think that's, what's so wonderful about the movie is the weirdness of everybody like you're saying, Michael, is just in the right place where if you're being a polite, passive, accommodating person, it you can excuse all of the weirdness. It, it's just okay enough that it's like, okay, it's just it's just fine. Um, and and it's so much fun to watch a movie play with that space because we've all been there and like we we've spent time in that place meeting family members, meeting friends, being at a party, or it's just like Something's deeply uncomfortable about you, but like, it's okay. It's fine. I'll just pretend like it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, while we're talking about performances, I mean, just everyone is so good in this movie. And like, one of the coolest things is to watch someone, watch an actor do two things at once. I think I mentioned before, um, it's just always sticks in my mind. Will Smith at the end of the pursuit of happiness, which most people even see that movie, mm -hmm. but like spoiler, he gets the job. Um, and like, he is like <laughs> wanting to ball his eyes out, but also wanting to like be professional in front of these execs. Right. And it's like watching him try to be like him, the character, but also him, the actor, like try to battle both these things. And this movie is full of that. Right. Cause we have, like Chris, when he's getting hypnotized, right? And it's like he is, his face can only 
do so much, but his like brain is doing so much. And then the, you know, the best Georgina doing the no, 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 no. Right. Oh, like that God. is just insane. That, like that's like a long extended take. Oh, and it's so right. amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, and then Allison Williams, like doing the phone call. Right. Like which much my friend when he watched the movie, <laughs> yes. he's like, he's like, I didn't understand that was possible <laughs> that like a human being could Her like voice. make yeah, that voice face. while making yeah. that face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We have to shout out Betty Gabriel and Marcus Henderson, who are Georgina oh, and Walter. Yeah. yeah, just because they are they are the unsung heroes of this movie. Um, yeah. yeah. Crack. The performances up. are so uncanny. <laughs> like, so yeah. how do you yeah. like, yeah, the, the conversation when he's chopping wood, like, how do you like perform like facial expressions and dialogue in this exactly something's just so wrong, but you right. can't quite that you can't place it, but it's just it's just deeply wrong. And I, I that's part of the humor of this movie that I love too, is that's kind of the key and peel humor. It's like this ineffable, like something's effed up about this person or about the situation, but like you can't quite put your finger on it, but it's like really wrong. But like it's it, but it, it's in a way that you can't speak about you can only show or or right. act. yeah like literally yeah. then when, when chris is like trying to talk to somebody else about it he like can't even explain right. what was off you know yeah right right and, and and once again the satisfaction of it's all has a literal explanation at the end of the movie <laughs> right that right. makes right. that actually makes sense and adds up and their performances can be viewed with the explanation and they make perfect sense that's right. yeah One of the things I love about the video essay form is that it's such a great way to convey ideas. Video gives you multiple information streams, combining images, sound, and emotion to create something engaging and clear. But where can you find the right content to communicate your vision? And how can you do it efficiently? Storyblocks is a royalty-free stock library that makes it possible for creators to keep up with the growing demands for modern video content. So you can bring all your stories to life and stop sacrificing your vision due to time, budget, or resources. Unlike traditional stock sites that limit content with a pay-per-clip model, Storyblocks gives you unlimited downloads so you can create more. They have images and illustrations, audio and sound effects, and high-quality video and video templates. If you've ever been a video editor with a rapidly approaching deadline, you'll know the value of being able to grab what you need and implement it quickly. And Storyblocks has a selection of flexible subscriptions, so you can focus on creating instead of worrying about budget. To check out Storyblocks and sign up for their unlimited all-access plan, head to storyblocks.com slash beyond the screenplay. Once again, that's storyblocks.com slash beyond the screenplay. The link is also in the show notes. Thanks to Storyblocks for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Well, and all of these, like all the things that you guys are highlighting here, you know, really just to me hammer home what a triumph of dialogue writing this is. Like it's all dialogue is the thing. Like uh, so much of the unease and the satire comes in in the actual writing of the dialogue and the way that it's perfectly balanced, um, not not just in like the comedy, because I think a lot of the comedy comes in the performance, but just in the like sort of cultural um, nuance that's being observed, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, one of the most interesting scenes in the movie, I think, is like early on when uh, they're in the car 
and he's on the phone with Rod. And we hear the way, it's like a code switch, right? We hear the way that he talks to Rod on the phone, um, and it's kind of different than the way that he speaks to Rose. Um, and the way that, like, so there's there's that cultural thing that's happening. The way that Rose speaks is really different from the rest of her family, right? The way that Rose speaks, especially when she's only talking to Chris, right? They kind of have this, like, urban, like we're, you know, people of a certain generation. We kind of have our own like language and our own sort of dialect that we speak to each other. Um, even in spite of their like, you know, racial difference, there's, they're on the same wavelength in terms of dialogue, the way that they talk to each other in the room. You guys are pointing out later that night where Rose is kind of ranting about how awkward and terrible her parents are. And Chris is, is having, it's sort of a one-sided conversation, but he's responding to her. It's again, it's signaling like this is its own language over here, right? There's a language over here that Chris speaks when he's not with Rose. There's a language he speaks when he and Rose are together. There's a language he speaks to Rose's parents, Rose's parents, and the the language that Rose's family speaks when they're with each other. And then there's like the big language that Rose's family speaks to their peers, right? And to mm. their neighborhood and their community. And it, we kind of see all of these layers of like Chris trying to navigate the dialogue, even just like, mm. what words can I say and not say? And that's what creates that sense of horror with Georgina and I'm sorry, what's the name of the other? Uh, um, Walter. The groundskeeper, Walter. Mm. Thank you. Um, that's what creates that horror, right? They're not speaking the right language, right? Chris is right, approaching right. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. He's approaching them and speaking one way to them. And they're answering in a, a way that is essentially a foreign language to him, right? Or it's Grandma not the answer he's right. It's not the answer <laughs> right. he's expecting, right? There's a generational gap. Obviously, there's a cultural and racial gap. And so <laughs> it's it again, it's like I can't it's really hard to parse on first viewing what's off about certain scenes, but it's all in the dialogue writing. And it's so impressive. Um, and, and when I say that something is sharply observed, that's really what I mean, right? It's like someone who is like, the way that Chris and Rose talk to each other in Chris's apartment is warm. It's loving. It feels like a modern relationship in any like modern rom-com that we might see. And then we it's see like all the of these... Shared- sense of humor right yep, where they're like key. making like plan words mm-hmm. of like you know yes parents i'm going to bring my my black boyfriend my he's a black man <laughs> right like yeah. the, just like those little plays on words that, yeah my parents are not racist i would have told you <laughs> even later when they're talking out by the river or whatever when he goes on a walk right mm-hmm. again we see that again that shared language is being revisited and it brings us back to a safe place in the dialogue it's just really good dialogue. The other element that is so important, I think, for the tension and the horror are, is setting. And I think the movie mm. right up front plays with setting because most of our you know classic horror movies are in a nice neighborhood where this, the killer shows up, you know, Halloween or, or whatnot. This movie begins in a really affluent, nice neighborhood uh, where it's the scariest possible place for this black guy mm-hmm. to be walking around alone at night. <laughs> um, yep. And and then when we're going into the, you know, the scary place, it is this country home uh, in this kind of beautiful, 
like natural surroundings where there's nothing around for a, a long time. You're just alone in the country. Um, and and I think the de, like the production design of the house itself, the when he goes down to the basement, especially. Oh, yeah. There's this like very specific kind of like wood paneled, creepy country club thing that just has always unnerved me as somebody just grew up in like, <laughs> I don't know, like a modern suburb in the West. Like when I go to like old, like wood paneled country club <laughs> places, I feel very like uncomfortable. Like, like this is from a different time when things were like bad for people who weren't just like white men. And like, this is their like original like den and like uh-huh. like this i don't know i don't know if i feel comfortable here um and it's just a really I, I think just every element of the you know the the props on the you know mantelpieces and the color of the walls and just everything about the house and the setting and the party they have is just all pitch perfect like something about this is from another time that was not like a friendly time and place for a person of color. <laughs> and, and it just, you're just soaked in that, in this movie. Well, and so much of what this movie is doing in the production design and the story world and setting, and as you're pointing out and everywhere is messing with our expectations in the genre, right? It's like when we go to a remote place in a horror movie, it's a creepy old dilapidated house that's run down and no one has cared for it. There's cobwebs everywhere and like someone died there. And this is not that, right? It's, it is remote, but it's nice. It's well kept. It's like typical, you know, in a kind of isolated, but not totally isolated. All these other people in the community are there. You get the sense that there's probably another house, you know, right, like over the ridge or whatever. Um, it it creates, it subverts sort of this expectation. It creates a story world that lulls us into a sense of security because of genre expectations that we have um, or just messing with sort of genre expectations that we have. And it's the same thing with so much of what this movie is doing, right? It's like these people, they don't look threatening, right? Like classic horror movie thing is like somebody with a disfigurement or they're old or they have a creepy voice or they have a glass eye or whatever it is in, in, in like cheap horror movies, they signal to you when someone is like the bad guy. And it's like, the movie is not signaling to you that they're the bad guy. Again, it's just sort of like driving at where you feel comfortable, especially if you in the, this case is a white person, right? Like right. you, the audience, me as a white person and <laughs> two of the other people <laughs> on this podcast, like where we feel comfortable, it's driving at that, right? And at the same time, making us aware of, hey, this situation that might feel comfortable for you, not comfortable for other people. Right. Well, and I think, I think what's so important about like, the way the movie frames these places is like, yeah, the neighborhood at the beginning is a source of horror. The urban apartment is a place of comfort and like security. And Mm -hmm. then when we pull up to the kind of plantation house and there's like, you know, a a black uh, man, like tending the grounds, uh, there's just an immediate sense of like unease in this. Otherwise. Yeah. There's like, there's, you know, the nineties, like, 
rom-com would take place in this house, you know, like the lake house. Definitely. Like, like this is a space I think I saw that, a Nancy Myers movie shot here. Right. Like in, in other contexts, this is the like den of warmth. But right. this movie is so brilliant at just using, you know, music and sound and perspective to immediately exactly. say, like, this is not a good place for everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's why, yeah, I I find the first half of this movie so hilarious and like why I will just start <laughs> laughing in the middle of these scenes because I'm realizing, you know, like, yeah, this is the horror movie setting. And like, I get that. But like, and the movie is also making the audience like slowly get that. And it's like doing these subversive things for like right. very like real purposes. And so like, I think I think that's why it was such a crazy watch the first time was just like, you're not. Are you doing this? Jordan Peele and like he is doing this and then I think the the midpoint of this movie I think is really interesting also where it, it kind of so there's the the big party where everyone shows up and by the end of that sequence the movie has announced like this is what's happening this is the bad you knew there was they, some kind of bad they're doing an auction this is an auction <laughs> yeah yes yeah. they are they're selling this there. black person yeah <laughs> just like oh my god yeah, when that scene happened the first time i'm like holy crap <laughs> right it's just like truly the whole time i was like there's no way they let him make this i don't understand um but yeah the, but the, so it, like in writing terms i feel like that's where it's moving from tension to suspense right where mm-hmm. we before we knew something bad is coming and now we know specifically this is the bad and the family we know all of these people are in on it and so the the one kind of remaining question that we don't know is is rose in on it or not mm-hmm. and and like different people had made up their minds at that point but i feel like I was impressed by the the way that they had drawn their relationship made me want her to not be in on it. And I think that was enough like that that signaled that I was emotionally involved and and had this hope of like I wanted her to not be in on it. The little closet reveal. So good. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Which is maybe my so to get into like the few bumps I have. Okay, Is it a bump for you? It's a little bit like, why does she have that there? Why is the door open? Why does he go look in there? I mean, the door might be open on purpose because they're, again, they're just like... Psychopaths. You can find anything. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's possible. I think what's weird to me is that the moment where he's like... Where are those car like give me the car keys, like where are the car keys? And then she like jingles and like, you know, you know, I can't give you these. It seems like the movie thinks that I don't know that she's a bad guy at that point yeah, exactly the movie just told us right it felt like the movie is signaling like she's in on it that like like again it's like her performance yeah, like performance the way that she changes amazing. and stuff it's such a cool moment but i agree that like that mo i would i want that moment to be the moment that i know not five right. minutes ago yeah because i was i was actually confused during all of that so i was like wait you just told me movie that like she right she said this is like the first black person she's ever dated she has a whole box of these people like we know her family is here like selling like clearly she's in on it and so it was that moment was kind of a weird thing of like you just told me that she's right. one of the bad guys i wonder if it would work if all we saw was him his face discovering something right mm. right and then the next five minutes was this tension we got to go we got to go we got to go right and then like you do some sort of cross cut where like as she says can i give the keys then you reveal what he was seeing or something like that that sounds kind of corny but i wonder if there's a way where that could all happen um my only other bump and it is about sort of revealing information is 
it just sort of feels like forced writing is when she says grandma and get him grandpa. It just sort of feels I like it's for just comedy's sake. <laughs> right. It's funny. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like, I feel like I don't, I don't want the movie to be funny at that, at that exact moment. You know, it just sort of feels to me like if I was judging that, not in the context of this very good movie, it would be like, well, we, we need to tell the audience that this is grandma and grandpa and we haven't done that yet. So I guess we'll just have a character say grandpa and then or say grandma and then immediately afterwards say get him grandma as in like, hey, in case you didn't know, we have to tell you now. Right. And like there is a way where you construct it such that like we very much know at, at that, that point. point. The movie's gone into like camp with the Rose character because like she, cause sure. she's so over the top in the finale. Evil, yeah. And so I, to right. me, it reads more as like campy. Like she's just like, get him, grandpa. Like, like <laughs> grandma. Like, it, it, I don't know. To me, it feels like we're now in a Key and Peel sketch almost. And I, and I like it. <laughs> the literalization right. of like, no, she, they literally call them like grandma and grandpa. Like, like as well as just the, like the absurdity yeah, of it. Is, the people that yeah. they put her grandma's brain into, she like still calls grandma. Like, <laughs> mm. yeah. Well, I just want to talk about the Rose character for another minute or so, because I think the test of a real twist is, does it work on rewatch, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people have talked about how brilliantly the character is written, where you could read alternate motivations for her. And that's a really big, like, people have said that, but I don't want to brush over it just because it's been said before. It is hard to do well. Um, because character motivations need to be rock solid in every scene. And so, you know, the scene, of course, where they get pulled over, which the deer is a jump scare. It's rude. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) but of course, thematic, right? It comes back later. Like there's the whole, like, get rid of the deer. I hate deer. Or just like, every time I see a dead deer, I'm like, there's a, that's a start. And then we're going to stab you with some deer horns. Um, I get it. I saw what you did movie. Um, (laughs) but like that scene, of course, you know, you can be, a lot of people are like, Oh, she didn't want the cop to know that he was like there. Cause then they would know that he was a missing person or whatever, um, later. So she didn't want him to see the driver's license. But I think in, it's really, really hard to write scenes like that where there is a motivation that is accessible and compelling on the surface where like Rose is standing up for her boyfriend in the face of a racist cop. And that is a compelling motivation. It doesn't need to have another layer underneath of it. So we're not going to be looking for another layer underneath of it. It's difficult to write stuff like that. And there are so many moments like that with Rose, right? Where it's like, she's really just trying to buy time later. Right. Right. Where it's like, let's go on a walk, babe. Like, and she's trying to get him off the grounds or whatever, like, Mm -hmm. or just kind of talk to him. Um, But you can read, there is a real textual and compelling motivation if you don't know the twist in that scene. And then if you do know it, it's readable on another level. That's hard writing to do. Um, On the point of like where the actual twist comes out, I agree that like once I saw the whole box of photographs, I was like, well, okay. So she's part of it. Um, I think it's interesting to note that like a lot of people apparently have wanted Rose to not be like evil all the way down. 
um, mm. and be like, well, maybe she was hypnotized by her mom or like maybe she was, you know, she's been, she's a, she's a victim too. She was traumatized from a young age, right? She's been a part of this since she was like six years old. And, um, they were like Rose defenders. <laughs> there, oh, there are so many, um, there are so many Rose defenders. Uh, and I think, I don't know. I just really respect the hell. I just want to say this. I respect the hell out of Allison Williams who, Every time there are Rose Defenders, she's like, absolutely not. Rose is right. evil. <laughs> like, I mean, she's the most she's like cartoonishly evil at the end. Evil. Like, she's the yeah, most evil. Exactly. Right. Right. I'll say what I always say. If it's not in the text, it's not in the movie. Not in the you movie. can go have your theories if you want, right. but it's not in the movie. No. And I, like I said, I just think obviously what's being played with there is a white savior trope. Like we're mm-hmm. expecting there to be one white person in this movie right. that's not evil all the way down and I love that there isn't um yeah. again there's genre things that are happening here there's like Jordan Peele knows what we expect right like and that's to your um point about like your incredulity that this movie could exist Michael it's all of that right it's like well you have to do it this there like even in 12 years a slave, there's going to be like one good white person. Right. Like, Brad Pitt's going to show up. Yeah. But, <laughs> but no, like I think the movie doesn't compromise um, on its message and on its like observations about uh, the, the social situation that it's portraying. And so um, I don't know. I just think that the Rose character is like one of the best probably just one of the best written characters ever. Um, but as an antagonist, especially, um, and a character that's like embedded with a twist that you absolutely, you just don't want it to be true. And just all the way is. Well, I feel like that's where I can empathize with the, like the reason I didn't want Rose to be a bad guy, um, was I felt like it was one of the few, like biracial, relationships that had been Mm, rendered in a three-dimensional empathetic way in a a movie so it was like that's rare also so i was like i want to preserve that also um but it is yeah i I think the it is crazy that the movie is so uncompromising and it like cannot understate how much i was relying on that meta aspect of like they're not going to let all the white people be bad in this movie like that's not possible and how much that played into the twist right and i think that is also just like now that we're kind of five years past uh when this movie came out and thinking about the context of it something i I have been thinking about is just yeah those meta things those unwritten or kind of yeah unwritten unspoken rules that frame movies especially movies about these sensitive topics i remember uh, talking to my dad about this movie and him being like super uncomfortable like the first time he watched Whoa. it and talked to me afterward of like w- like I didn't like when you know Chris and Rose they showed them like kissing like I don't think they should have been in that bed and like I don't know because because from his perspective and the life that he's lived that's like you know if that had been on screen 60 years ago that would have been riots people could have been killed because of those images and so like that he had to watch this movie several times before he was like, oh, it's okay that, like, we're showing these images and, like, that's a big deal. Uh, so it, it's just crazy how things can change and that I love that this movie came and did all these things that we're talking about. It was, like, bold enough to 
like go all the way because I feel like it does unlock like new opportunities and new like touch points and all this stuff. Uh, my dad ended up loving this movie. Um, yeah, so just really interesting. I think so. The last thing that we we had a request to talk about was the the alternate ending, and I feel like this kind of plugs into the conversation of the alternate ending. Mm-hmm. And so, if you haven't seen the alternate ending, uh, listener, the so the original ending was uh, Chris does kill uh, Rose on the side of the road there, and the cops pull up, and it's the real cops, and Chris essentially gets sent away to jail for who knows how long because that's the system in which he lives and that's probably the most realistic uh, outcome of this situation and, and that moment yeah the cops would definitely show up and just arrest him <laughs> oh god <laughs> well i mean <laughs> to yeah. your exact point i was not worried about him getting arrested when i first saw that yeah right, when I first right. Saw well because Speaking real quick, because um, I was thinking of Night of the Living Dead, speaking of movies that, you know, like horror movies I was thinking about while watching this, where the ending, spoiler for a 60-year-old movie, um, is uh, uh, Jim, who is the main, like the the male lead, who is also black, um, is the only person who survives the night. And then the cops show up and they see him in the house and just kill him. Because, you know, and, and George Romero has said, like, I didn't really think about race when I cast the role or whatever, but like this was 1968. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And it's like it you can't re- not read into a movie where yeah. like the cops show up and it's like, well, I guess that's one of the the bad things. Right. You know, um, so, again, that's why I was expecting that. ending. again, I think you're supposed to expect that ending. Right. When you just see like the the some sort of official car pull up, you're like, well, there <laughs> there goes Chris. Yep. That's why. It- it's so brilliant the way that it yeah. is mm-hmm. in the movie, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think because, you know, Jordan, Jordan Peele's talked about how post the 2016 election, you know, he wrote this during the Obama era yes. and this kind of like fantasy post racist era. <laughs> right. um, and ah, yeah. uh, the illusions of those things had dissipated uh, by the time the movie was, was coming out. And so he realized it needed more of a. Uh, aspirational heroic ending and so that's why it ends the way it does but as you were just saying there alex i feel like the everything that other ending does is just simply there in the moment when the cops show up and Mm -hmm. i just like i remember it's so like cracking up in disbelief yeah Yeah. that like that's what it was and I, i it's such a great example of like you can tell people to believe a thing or to think away but if you can make them empathize and take them on a journey such that like any audience member knows that when the cop shows up in this moment, that is a bad thing. Like that is a revealing of a universal truth that is like undeniable because it's like happening entirely in the person. And that's why that, yeah, moment is just so, it's just such a good moment. It just does it all. It's like he's screwed. Like there's there's no way out of this. Like, like the thing that is the savior of every other horror movie is the way he will fall in this movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then I do like then that once we, once we get the rod reveal, that's just the end of the movie. Right. I I don't really want the like two weeks later, you know, it's like, we don't need it. We, yeah, it's all, it's all done. Yeah. It's yeah. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Oh, boy. Get out. Lots, lots of stuff. Good movie. Okay. Well, why don't we Yeah, move to lessons and what lessons we're going to take away from Get Out. Brian, do you want to start us off? 
I mean, Trisha touched on, on this a little bit with, you know, the jump scares and, and we we're talking about the feeling of unease. I was just thinking about how to keep your movie consistent with its genre, especially when genre stuff isn't happening yet. Like when the thing that the movie is hasn't happened yet. So an example would be a superhero origin movie where the protagonist doesn't become a superhero until halfway into the movie, right? Like maybe they get their powers at the inciting incident or the end of act one, but like, it's not really until the midpoint where we're really going to see and be a superhero. And it's like, audiences don't want to sit through an hour of just exposition and setup, or at least, you know, some audiences don't. Um, so you have to find a way to deliver some of the, the, the genre that they're expecting before the protagonist is able to go be that thing, right? So you show the villain doing their superhero villain stuff. You show another superhero, if that's a thing in, in whatever your movie is. Um, you show the hero starting to get powers, right? You know, an action movie is another easy one where it's like, we're going to start off with a big action sequence and then we're going to cut to like, here's this guy who's just living his day-to-day life, right? And da-da-da. But then like in 20 minutes, we're going to get more action again. Um, and I think horror is especially tricky because like this movie, a lot of horror movies have just sort of an on-off switch where it's like, now the thing is happening, right? Like now Jack Torrance is running around with an axe or now Regan is possessed by a demon or now zombies are surrounding the house or, you know, get out. Like now we know that we have to be running. And it's like up until that point, you kind of, you know, how like if the characters are scared, then they probably would just leave already. Right. So you kind of, you can't have the characters be too scared. Um, and you can't put that moment, that, that on switch moment too early because then your whole movie is just someone running from something, right? Like forever, like just the movie gets boring. The, 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 how do you keep ramping up the intensity? If we've, you know, 10 minutes in, like done, like the uncut gems of horror movies would just be like, well, right now the bad thing has happened. And now here's two hours. Like, Oh Jesus. Um, so but then if people are expecting a horror movie, right? And when I say people, I mean, not Trisha, uh, they expect or want horror movie things to be happening even until the horror thing happens. And you get this in The Shining, you get this in The Exorcist, you get just like something weird just happened. Something is wrong. Like there's something, I just got scared by something or I just got whatever, you know? And I think Get Out does all of the, it sort of checks a lot of these boxes of like how to make your horror movie a horror movie before it becomes a horror movie, if that makes sense. Like before it has flipped the switch that goes, now we're in horror movie territory. So as you mentioned, Michael, like the opening, the, the classic horror movie opening of here's a side character, here's Drew Barrymore, and like they're going to get attacked by the thing, right? So we get that with Lakeith Stanfield, who I love, and he's great in this movie. Um, and then you get uh, general tone stuff, right? Like Georgina is is like maybe the best tool in in the tone toolbox right in terms of just like something is wrong with this place she's gonna Chris walk by the doorway it. extra creepy like <laughs> right yeah exactly and make a sound when she does yeah like those right. movies and she's characters stand in a window too. extra creepy <laughs> right yeah she's doing two things what because my next thing was jump scares which jump scares is the easy one but it's like it's fun you know yeah. and where it works it works um so you get georgina jump scares you get the deer uh i think there are other i can't think of any right now but there's other just like people that aren't there when you're you know that just sort of are not where you're expecting them to be so you turn and my dog did that to me the other day i opened the fridge and when i closed it was standing there. um 
yep. I didn't even hear him come up the stairs. Um, so, so yeah, I just think like it's a general thing to think about with whatever your genre is. You know, there's a lot of movies where you feel like you're waiting for the longest time for it to become the movie you're you're expecting it to be. And I think the best horror movies out there and the best movies of any genre find clever ways to like give you the genre emotion you're expecting before the movie goes full tilt into that because a lot of times that's not until halfway into yeah yeah i think this really is an interesting movie to watch and think about for those reasons because it is it, it almost like sticks out to me in a way that like on on repeat viewings i'm like ah i i know that you need to be signaling that you're a horror movie because that's what people expect but like having seen the rest of the movie, I don't know that I need you to be signaling that you're going to be a horror movie. Sure. But it is important for that buy-in for that first time for that. Like if you're just going to watch a horror movie, you need these things as you're saying. And they find creative ways of doing that. Because otherwise you get movies like Last Night in Soho, which are a really great non-horror movie for half of it and then turn into a really not great horror movie for the second half of it. And you're just going, this isn't, I, I liked the first half. I want the rest of that movie. <laughs> I'm curious to watch that one day. Yeah. 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 Cool. Alex, what's your lesson? I think my lesson is just, you know, there's specificity with the main character, but I think there's also incredible specificity with the antagonists. And I think it's what a what an accomplishment that Jordan Peele was able to essentially take on like the white liberal <laughs> like version of <laughs> racism or like racial clumsiness, right. which is which is a much more subtle form of this thing than like the the overt you know kind of racist stereotype and you know i think back to this moment you know in the kind of 2016 election you know even in the democratic party there was this split between kind of i don't know there's kind of the the good like rich liberals and like the kind of like people who are like really emphasizing like economic disparities and kind of like talking past each other and i think it's a really interesting moment in this movie where you know, you you get to the house, you're getting the tour of the house, and there's this also this huge economic disparity on display of just, yeah, we own this massive house. There's nobody around for miles. We have like live in maids and servants, and but like, but we're cool. We're like we're cool liberals who like voted for Obama mm -hmm. twice, and it, it's just a very particular thing that this movie like explores, and and that's that's the realm of this particular type of social anxiety where it's, it's self-identified good liberals, but who are living in a world and a strata that is very disconnected from like, as the, uh, the kind of the, the blind, uh, art dealer says, like they don't understand what life is for real, real people, people normal people. Yeah. Um, mm. so I just really appreciate the, yeah, just the, the real specificity of the universe and the antagonist, because it allows this movie to explore that in a really fine way. And, and there could have been once again, like a really broad clumsier version of this movie that I don't think would be as impactful if it wasn't this specific and this sharply observed as we keep saying. Well, and the fact that the antagonists cover a spectrum of views, right? So it's yeah, like right. you have somebody like Bradley Woodford, you know, Dean, I guess is the name of his character, but yeah. he's like <laughs> incredibly cringe, right? And just right. like so out there about like his views and trying to act like, you know, signaling that like, oh, I'm collecting from all these other cultures and traveling and here's whatever. <laughs> right. um, but, and then you have Catherine Keener who is like a little more chill about the whole thing. Um 
and and seems like potentially a little bit more of a grounded person. And then also keeping the brother character mm-hmm. out of it until a little later is really smart because he's an extreme on the other end. He's where not we can the nice see, liberal. Yeah. No, no, he, that he's kind <laughs> of unhinged and, and right. also like overtly racist. Right. And we kind of see that there's a threat there already. So his extreme end of that, you know, the antagonist's viewpoint, like neutralizes this other end, right, with the parents where it's like, they're pretty embarrassing, you know, how like <laughs> how much they want to be cool or whatever. But like maybe the brother is actually the real threat in the family. He's right. like pretty out there and it makes them look better and it makes us feel better about the parent characters. And so having there's not the antagonists of the family. They're not just all one note, all they're, the same they're thing. Spectrum. They're a spectrum of like different takes on this viewpoint. And so I think to your point, it makes them that much more like difficult to navigate and take on. And I think it's really fascinating that in the climax, he has to take them on one by one. He doesn't fight them all at once. He fights them Mm. one by one slowly, Mm. (laughs) so slowly. And I I'm sorry, I will never get over Daniel Kaluuya's performance as he faces off with each one of them where he's just like, now I have to fight you. <laughs> like, <laughs> now I have to fight you again. I'm so tired. Like, why, have to, why do I have to fight you again? The scene where he like races Catherine Keener for the, for the um, teacup. The teacup. <laughs> he's like, just his, the look on his face is like, please, for the love of God, don't go for that teacup. I don't want to have to kill you also. Like, it's so much right. work for me. Right. Like, I don't want to do this. And then she does just the resolution on his face of just like, God damn it. All right. Okay. I'll kill you too. Like (laughs) why I have to go through this family one by one by one. Um, But again, it it reinforces that racism doesn't all look like one thing. Right. It looks like a variety of things. Mm -hmm. They all need to be fought on their own terms. (laughs) And I also like that we have Steven Root, who's kind of like the good guy, bad guy. Right. Because he's like, he's like, look, I want to effectively kill you and take your body. But like, it's just because I want to be a good photographer. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's all. Or I want to yeah. be a good, like, I don't care what your skin color is. Uh, I just want your eyeballs. Right. Right. <laughs> what a good guy. <laughs> but yeah, but it, it's, I think what's great about it too is, yeah, once again, it's the movie works in so many levels because you've got this family that does this operation that, you know, still happens to like use black bodies and like repurpose black bodies for their own needs. But it's like, but it's not about race. Like we're not racist people. We just happen to like do it this way. Yeah. It's just, there's just so many ways to read all of the parts of it. It's just, that's too good. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I feel like we've, we've hit on the well-observed thing a million (laughs) times, but I think it's because this is maybe one of the most potent examples Mm -hmm. of like, you, mm. you can tell that the person that wrote and directed this movie has lived experience. all of the experiences. Yep. And and I think that is something that is unique about Jordan Peele and, and Keegan-Michael Key. Like they they have navigated like both of these cultural spaces. So this is lived, honest expressions of things. And I think that's why it it gives everybody three dimensionality. And as you're saying, Alex, allows there to be like a, a more nuanced take on these themes that also rings true because it's based in in lived experience and seen through 
like an empathetic eye. Like, I think that's that's something I appreciate anyways, that nobody is, for most of the movie, rendered as two-dimensional bad guys. Like, there's a lot mm-hmm. of time to interrogate the complexities of the problem at hand. Uh, and so I just appreciate that he was able to do that and then also give the big cathartic ending. Yeah, but, but, still, but still give us total psychotic rose at the end. Right. Yeah. The way, yeah. way, that scene where she eats the Fruit Loops and like the way she holds up the single Fruit Loop and like kind of considers <laughs> it for a moment before like biting <laughs> off like a piece of a single Fruit Loop before like gently sipping the milk in like little short bursts. It's just... <laughs> Like, how do you do that? Like, how do you plan and like execute that scene? And how does it feel so perfect? It's just, yeah, I just love it so much. <laughs> uh, Trisha, what's your lesson? Um, so I'm still stuck on the hypnotism scene and how horrifying it is. And like that scene is so powerful that I was surprised there was like another two thirds of the movie after it. Um, I was like, oh, this is over now. This is like, this is your showcase. This is like your big set piece, um, thing. And it's the poster of the movie. Um, and you know, it's kind of the scene you always hear about. And I was kind of trying to dive in this time into why it, it has such power. And I think, so, you know, characters, uh, that have an arc, typically have some kind of ghost, right? They have something broken in their lives. And it's not obvious what's broken in Chris's life when we meet him. He seems like a relatively well-adjusted person. Um, Again, we talked about how he's a little passive, um, where for understandable and very justifiable reasons where he's just trying to navigate the situation and diffuse things. Um, But he is a little bit passive for a protagonist of a movie. Um, and his ghost is like, we get a hint of it earlier where he's like, oh, my mom died in a hit and run. You know, that's, that's all we kind of know about it. Um, I think that the hypnotism scene is incredibly powerful because it dives into the ghost and, and that the Chris's like trauma in his past is not immediately obvious how it relates to what's going on around him. I think it's just haunting to be forced to share trauma that you don't want to share <laughs> in like a very simplistic way, right? He has already told Catherine Keener's character uh, that he doesn't want to talk about it. And I guess her name is Missy. Um, I think that's the name of the character. Dean and Missy. Armitage. Dean and Missy. Um <laughs> But he's already told her that he doesn't want to talk about it and he doesn't remember very much about it. And she kind of insists, right? And I think the thing about his performance in that scene, it's clear that the information is being dragged out of him. He's speaking against his will. Um, He doesn't want to tell her about this very shameful thing in his past. And I think that in itself is horrifying, right? Even before he sinks into the floor, it's horrifying to see him forced to relive a trauma from his life. Um, And I think that's one of the most unique things about this movie is that it taps into um, this horror of not having control. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's what the fundamental horror is of 
what, you know, the character is ultimately facing, Chris's character is ultimately facing. It's like, you'll be a passenger in your body, but you won't have control, right? And so it's this lack of control. And it's the first taste of it that Chris gets. Lack of control is horrifying no matter who you are. Um, And so the lack of control in the hypnotism scene is where like he cannot get up he cannot get out of that chair. And he also can't stop telling this terrible, terrible, terrible story from his past. So like the sunken place part is really terrifying. Um, and just the simplicity with which she says, now sink into the floor is the worst thing ever. Um, but even before that, that scene is driving at like a deep psychological horror that we don't often see um, portrayed so vividly on screen. And, you know, when we were talking about Jaws, we talked about uh, like the horror of responsibility and how responsibility is also horrifying where it's like, if you're, it's your job to keep everybody safe and you can't, that is a horror. Um, and I think the best horror movies tap into kinds of horror that we don't often see. Like anybody would be scared of getting stabbed in the face, but that's not like an, that's not a psychological horror. That's not the kind of deep horror that we like kind of, that can be experienced when movies are really smart and they go after sort of these like deeper, more um, hidden or subtle kinds of horror um, that we do experience uh, in life. And so a lack of control and coupled with that, having to relive a trauma and tell a story you don't want to tell to essentially a stranger um, is terrifying enough. Um, And I think it's just brilliantly, brilliantly done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and just like the, as you kind of pointed out also, like so much of the the horror of it is how little effort she has to put into it of like, she's sitting comfortably in her chair with her tea, just like living her kind of best life. And she has complete power over this other individual who has only been trying to like be a person around her. And she is able to like, trap him and sink him into the floor and get everything that she wants from him to like maintain her life. So yeah, there's, there's so many, there's just so much happening and it is like disturbing as you're saying on so many levels. And it is also interesting how early in the film it comes. Cause I remember watching it the first time and also having that moment of what you're saying of like, Oh, this must be, this must be it. But then there is the like, Oh, it was a dream. And then things mm-hmm. kind of move on in a way that is, almost like a magic trick right. where like you start to kind of forget a little bit also. It's kind of my thing of how do you make your horror movie a horror movie before it comes one, you know, right. it's like, well, you just make the protagonist forget it ever happened. And I think just really quickly, we've talked about, we've named that this movie is well observed in a variety of ways. And I think that as a writer, if you are hoping to write horror, observing moments of fear in yourself and examining what is causing that is worthwhile for that reason, because you might tap into one of these kinds of horror that we've never really seen before portrayed Mm -hmm. very vividly on screen. Um, there was a a time in my life where I, so I have chronic nightmares. Um, and, (laughs) and for a while in my life, I would wake up and I would write poems about what they were about. Um, And it was just a useful exercise as a writer because I was kind of getting into like, maybe these are some kinds of fear that I didn't know that I had. 
Um, and I, you can kind of feel that when you watch this movie where it's like Jordan Peele kind of tapped into some stuff that n- is not easy to tap into um, and not easy to articulate either. But like as a writer, you have to do that. That's your job is to do that work um, in yourself and just in society and just kind of tap into that stuff that isn't easily named, but is very potent. And so I think that that's another part of the reason why this movie is so, um, I, I don't know, it just kind of grips you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like it's, it's one of my favorite examples of, you know, people say, write what you know. And I feel like that can be kind of taken to mean lots of different things. Definitely. I feel like this is like my favorite example of that, of like writing what you know, so that it is emotionally honest. You're getting to a, a vulnerable thing, as you're saying, Trisha, and you're translating it, your experience of what you know to other people so that they can know what you know in like a generous, entertaining and powerful way. Yeah. Don't stay tuned for um, any movies based on any of my nightmares, though. I'm not going to be doing that. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to see Trisha's Nightmare Journal. No, no, now no. I want to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Trisha should have been writing series. horror movies yeah. all along. Uh, I'm going to read it like Vincent Price on the podcast. Stay tuned. Ooh, perfect. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. To just quickly do my lesson, as I mentioned it earlier, but I just love the design of this horror movie protagonist. And I get so distanced by dumb people in horror movies Mm. where I'm just like, why would you do that? Don't do that. Why would you think that? Don't think that. Why would you go there? Don't go there. Like I immediately disconnect from dumb people making dumb decisions that don't make any sense that are just there to motivate the next dumb thing to happen. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I just really like that Chris is a smart protagonist that we understand the decisions that he's making throughout and that there is an intelligence and nuance and realism to the way that he navigates the world. Like, yeah, like I feel like horror movies, I'm generalizing, but a lot of horror movies are either like the people in it have never seen a horror movie and so don't know to do the dumb things or they've literally seen the movie series that they're in. And so they're self-referencing like, (laughs) you know, in the previous Scream movie, we did this thing. Um, and I just love like alien comes to mind also just like people making like smart decisions, I think is a cool constraint to put on yourself when writing a right. horror movie. Cause I right. think you can get it like real horror that brings people into it. of like, Oh, that's what I would have done at, or, and, and yeah, adds the relatableness to it that I think is important if you're going, especially for like the elevated horror thing. Even the way that Chris tells Rose, about the stuff that's happening to him is just like, so I think she unplugged my phone. And like, just the way that he explains what he's experiencing is interesting because right. we've seen what actually happened. And then we see the way that he explains it. And there's that disparity, but it's like, it's how you would describe it. I, I think. Right. Yeah. He's like going for the, like the best tactic to actually right. achieve his goal, not just the biggest and loudest. Exactly. Is a social context in play where he's trying to navigate a lot of different objectives and Mm -hmm. you know it's so yeah it's just it all makes sense cool all right 
What else have you guys been watching? Alex, what have you been watching recently? Uh, so I watched uh, finally the movie I've been meaning to watch for a while, which is uh, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, uh, which yes. came out in 2020. Um, I, we were at Sundance 2020, Trisha, and it was one of the movies I wanted to catch there, but I didn't get to see. Um, but man, it's a good movie to watch right now. If you, especially if you're, if you are a dude living in America, I think it's probably good <laughs> to watch this movie just to know what it's like to be a young woman living in America. Um, because, uh, you know, people can get pregnant, uh, and they can be 17 and they can be in a state that won't allow them to end that pregnancy. And, uh, you should probably know what it's like to be that girl. Um, just good for understanding fellow humans. Uh, it's a really just beautiful, like slice of life, matter of fact, but also like brutally honest indie film that's just quiet. And it's about just a girl who finds out she's pregnant and doesn't want to be pregnant and has to travel to another state with her cousin without any help to end the pregnancy and just all the obstacles that this country presents to somebody who finds themselves in the situation is just it's just and it's just very it's not it just shows reality and the reality is important i think for us to all be aware of especially now uh so yeah this is a good movie to watch never rarely sometimes always Yep. Yeah, I recommended it as what I'm watching about a year and a half ago, probably it rocked my face off and I re-recommend it strongly yeah. today. Yes. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Brian, what have you been watching? A less recent movie, um, which I saw a while ago and loved at the time, wanted to see it again. I went to a screening of The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, oh, nice. which is a 1962 John Ford Western, one of his last Westerns. And it is sort of a meditation on the death of the wild west ideology um and it is perfectly cast because the two leads are jimmy stewart as ransom stoddard a lawyer from the east coast who comes to this small town in the wild west and he has all this big city knowledge but he can't you know shoot a gun to save his life or or do any of the sort of wild westy things that he has to do and then John Wayne is the like local tough cowboy in the white hat who lives by the unwritten rules of the West. And it's, I recommended it on a Q and a, I think when, when someone was talking about uh, movies to watch for theme. And I just think this is one of the best movies I've ever seen in terms of how it handles like thematic content. Cause you have these two characters, each of whom represent an ideology. Everything else in the movie is direct conversation with those ideologies. Like the bad guy, Liberty balance, played by Lee Marvin, like Jimmy Stewart's like, oh, well, he's a bad guy. We should arrest him. We should take him to court. And it's like, no, no, no. That's not like the sheriff is drunk. Like there's a, that's not how we can do things around here. Um, and then there's a love triangle with Vera Miles character who John Wayne just assumes is his girl because he's just used to assuming things like that because that's how things are done here in the Wild West. And Jimmy Stewart's like, wait a minute, like that doesn't sound right. And Vera Miles' character is like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Um, so really entertaining, just lovely, like incredibly well-made movie, but has so much to say. And and it just like, I remembered so many things from this movie and I hadn't seen it in such a long time and it was such a joy to rewatch. So strongly, strongly recommend. Nice. Awesome. Cool. All right. Trisha? I have a new great submarine movie for you guys. <laughs> oh. <laughs> new submarine movie is not a term you hear a lot. Right. So, yeah. I, well, it's, it's from 2019. So it's a brand new submarine movie, but there's a French submarine movie from 2019 that I saw called The Wolf's Call. Obviously, that's the English title. 
Um, it is uh, written and directed by Antonin Baudry. And um, I just, oh my God, it's so good. Like, it's a really cool, sub, like, modern submarine movie um, starring this very beautiful <laughs> French actor <laughs> named Francois Seville. Um, Omar C is in it. Uh, Mathieu Kasovitz, uh, who you might recognize from Amelie, is in it. Um, Paula Beer, who I love, is in it. Um, it's, it's just a really wonderful movie. It's about the main character is a sonar tech, my favorite person on a submarine anyway. And (laughs) he has like the most amazing, you know, like hearing of all time. And he can just detect all the nuances of the undersea, anything that's happening, um, anywhere near his submarine and stuff. Um, but it's like, it's a really complex movie, um, there are there's more than one submarine in the water like at one point he gets grounded and he's like sent ashore and um is going to be um basically discharged like dishonorably discharged um whatever the equivalent of that is from the French navy and um it just it just has a lot of twists and turns that i found were unpredictable but it's also got a really strong mood to it and it's just cool as hell i it's great um, it's super taut. There's lots of really amazing submarine sequences and it definitely isn't a, it's not like a light or unintelligent submarine movie. It, it's, it's a very like, here we are going to get into the nitty gritty of like submarine tech and sonar tech and like, it's, it's awesome. Um, so anyway, The Wolf's Call from 2019. The Wolf's Call. All right. Strong recommend. Easily among my new, like, uh, certainly like immediately found its way into my top five submarine movies. It's Wow. You had me wow. a beautiful French actor. Oh my God. He's so gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> he's so gorgeous. And he's just like listening on his headphones really hard the whole movie. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Excellent. Michael, what have you been watching? So I've been listening to, I'm going to do that okay. thing where I, I, reco- right. I recommend a podcast. Uh, Radio Lab recently replayed an episode from 2016. So around the, the get out era um, that I'd forgotten about. And I think is re- a really interesting episode. It's one of their most kind of divisive episodes. And it's about college debate prep school. And uh, so it's a really it goes into this like fascinating world of of college debate where there are these different teams and the way you think about debate is not the way it actually is. Like people speak a mile a minute, like literally it's almost impossible. Like they're at an auction almost and it's like impossible to understand what they're saying because sometimes you're judged on how many ideas you put forth and the other team has to like respond like to every like point that you've made, but if they don't have enough time, then like they lose. And so the world of like debate has uh, changed in all these weird ways, but it's a really important way that a lot of um, like political people end up, you know, going through debate school and then end up as these really important power players in our government and all these things. So it's kind of this like breeding ground for important people And it's set up, like many systems, to uh, cater to a certain culture of people 
and dissuade other people from participating in it. And so this episode follows uh, a kid named Ryan Walsh, who's a queer, black, first-generation college student that gets swept up in the world of debate, and he and his friends kind of throw a wrench into everything and create this like wave of, we're not going to debate what the topic of the debate is. We're going to debate whether or not it's fair the way the debates are run. And chaos ensues, and it's this really interesting following the story of, like, basically these Black, queer, outsider people upending the world of debate, and it gets, like, right into the heart of, like, what is fair and how do our systems work where it's like, well, yes, it's unfair to these people that have prepared for this kind of debate, but also it's unfair to all these other people that don't have the resources and aren't like sponsored by name brand companies and don't have the resources to like pay people to prep them for things. So it's a really interesting, just like capture of this moment um, and the moral complexity of how do you design something to be fair in a world where nothing is fair. So it's called Debatable uh, on Radiolab. It's a really good episode of podcast that I think ties in nicely to the Get Out conversation. Nice. Okay, cool. <sighs> okay, well, this has been our conversation about Get Out. Um, could talk for much, much longer. I feel like one of these days I want to have an episode where we just, we literally get like a dartboard and like put scenes on the dartboard mm. from a movie and just throw a dart. And then it's like, okay, that scene, we're going to talk about that scene like for forever. Cause I feel like we, there are these movies that have so many great things to say that it does feel like, how do you get into all of them? Um, I'm down. Let's do it. <laughs> cool. Okay. We could probably we'll do, do the a... equivalent of that by like asking our patrons. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's probably a more uh, realistic and productive stand our patrons in a circle. And then right. throw darts yeah. at them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Trisha said it. <laughs> Absolutely not. Only darts made of love and roses. <laughs> I like it. Got, got dark. Got get out of there yeah, at the end. Exactly. Uh, we want to say a big thank you to our patrons for making this show possible. We will not throw darts at you. We'll invite um, you to our country home. And then in the basement, <laughs> we'll all get into a circle. A lovely, a lovely weekend. Um, if you want to help us make more episodes and get fun perks like voting on what movie our monthly patron exclusive episode will be or access to our occasional live uh, via streaming recordings, head over to the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon. The link is in the show notes want to say thank you to our producer vince major and thank you to our editors caleb berg graham harther and eric schneider i'm michael tucker and i've been joined today by trisha rand brian bittner and alex Cayados. all of our twitter handles are in the show notes send us a tweet and say hi and we will see you in the next episode for our discussion of thelma and louise and a young sexy brad pitt absolutely <laughs> bye everyone <laughs> bye 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 <laughs>